this is a disease that had never seen a human until mid-January or, or end of December, mid-January. So none of us knew what to do. Normally we go and look at textbook or a road trauma, you've learned about it, you've got textbooks, you go back and check. There's nothing written, you know, there's, there's no how to deal with COVID. Hi everyone, welcome once again to This Corona Life, a podcast exploring the experiences of an amazing group of people who are sharing with you their experiences in this new coronavirus world, how they've adapted and whether they see any positives or changes for the better coming from this. My name is Titch Graham and my guest today has a background in performing heart transplant surgery, leads the Bivacor development team which created a breakthrough design artificial heart, developed a device to get adrenaline into the lungs of people suffering from cardiac arrest, developed an app to diagnose delirium as an actor. He shared a stage with Daniel Craig and is the glue that holds together the over-35 Division 5 Newmarket Football Club. But it's his most recent undertaking that I wanted to talk about today with him. You see, he also happens to be one of Australia's leading intensive care specialists and the director of ICU at St Andrews Hospital in Brisbane and leads a global group of specialists at the front line of the coronavirus crisis. Let me introduce you to Professor John Fraser. Are you there, Professor? Great, Sage. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Not too bad, not too bad. Are, are you okay if I call you John? Yeah, no, of course, of course. I just wanted to say Professor once. It's, I thought it made me sound smart. But, no, um, no, no. no. <laughs> the, the only reason I got professorship is, sadly, I'm not even Division 5, over 35,000 Division 6. So oh, where no. I come from, uh, being a footballer is more important than being a doctor. And <laughs> it's the only thing I can annoy my brother about being ahead of him that I'm a professor, though he's better in the left wing than I ever was. <laughs> Well, we've got to get you up to Division 5. Anyway, that's another conversation. But firstly, given that intro, do you have any spare time? Uh, no, I've got five kids as well. So oh, um, they're, wow. they're probably the most, uh, they're, they're, they're the most important thing to me, but they're also probably the most uh, time-consuming. Look, there's not a lot of spare time at the moment. The, thing, the, the studies we're doing just now, and um, we'll talk about them later, are global. Uh, we've got 47 countries and 310 hospitals, I think. So there's an awful lot of time zones in there, and at the kickoff, not unreasonably, the, 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 the head people in the hospitals want to talk to the, the key people who are running this global study, which means that our phones kick off at four or five in the morning and go till about midnight. Um, you know, the last, thank God for Zoom and free voice over internet, um, because it cost me a fortune. You know, last night we had 12 hospitals from Indonesia, then we had Estonia, uh, then we had Pennsylvania, then we had Oshner in New Orleans, then we had the UK, and it's uh, nine in the morning so far. So um, there's not a lot of time but, uh, at the moment, but, you know, needs must, I guess. Well, and the 20 or 30 minutes a day you get spare, there's an annoying podcast who rings you. So um, <laughs> thank you for your time. Where are you right now? So I'm in the, the Critical Care Research uh, Group is based that this whole study's come out of is based at the Prince Charles Hospital. Right. So I'm in my lab, my corridor of labs. Uh, here we've got about uh, 88 staff, um, and I'd sent a lot of them home. We'd stopped doing the transplant work. We'd stopped doing the artificial lung work for a while. Uh, and bit by bit, thank God, Australia's at the moment at least avoided a bullet. So I've got the, the team coming back in and starting to re-kick things off. Yeah. So up until March... What were you doing? What were you actually focusing on? Look, uh, 
Um, the work we're doing with transplant, uh, with heart transplant, so at, at the moment, you know, the biggest uh, killer still is cardiovascular. Um, and we look at uh, bionic hearts, and just to just to slightly correct you, the Bivacor is a device by Daniel Timms, the I no longer lead it, but myself and him kicked it off in Australia. Right. So the bio, the bionic hearts, both Bivacor and other devices, we're looking at, and also heart transplants. How could we make donor hearts that were dead and non-usable? How could we basically reboot a dead heart to make it transplantable? And that's a huge effort uh, that our team. Uh, my, my team's working on. It's been about three years uh, working with the big centre, working with the Alfred in Sydney and St Vincent's in sorry, Alfred in Melbourne, St Vincent's in Sydney, and Pete McDonald in Sydney and David McGiffin. So we've done about two or three years' work, and we've basically shown that we can uh, make a donor heart usable and and work very well after ten hours, which is phenomenal because at the moment four hours is probably the cutoff. So this was a really exciting time for us and we'd also been looking at the artificial lung technology. Uh, we publish about 45 papers a year so when you see what were we doing, we're doing lots and lots of different things and, and realistically this study was kind of by mistake. I was asked to take over as the president of the Asia Pacific Artificial Lung Society in August, way before coronavirus uh, and he said look we want to get some research going and you, you know get a team and I said, sure, we went to Thailand, we had a nice party, uh, and the society really wasn't that active at that time, some great people. But we said, right, well, we'll start looking at things like flu and, and try and work out why do some people get an influenza and end up on the sofa watching Netflix and drinking hot chocolate for a couple of days? Mm -hmm. And why do some people with flu, influenza, end up in our intensive care on ECMO? So we'd started designing a study. We'd got a, a steering committee across the Asia-Pacific region and had started really just gently discussing, you know, if and when the new flu virus kicked off across Asia. And then suddenly one of our colleagues, we've got Chinese, Koreans, Japanese, Italians, you name it, in our group here in Brisbane. And one of them said, look, something's happening in Wuhan. I've travelled through China many times. First time was in a kilt in 1992 across the Trans-Mongolian. <laughs> uh, I love China. So we said, oh, let's have a look and see if this is a flu. Uh, and we created a bit of a study protocol for the Asia-Pacific. And then uh, I think the rest is history. It just became bigger and bigger and bigger. So kind of by mistake, we're in the, the, the right place at the wrong time or the wrong place at the right time. I'm not sure which. Well, yeah. Uh, so, so so you we, were there. When things started to change, you were sort of... Uh, we were at ground on the zero. We, we, yeah, we, we knew about it before other people did because our, our staff are from China, from Korea, from Japan. Uh, so we were we, we were there first, I guess, in terms of looking at things. We created the protocol over the, the, the Australia Day weekend. We translated into four different languages. The team we've got here is just great. And uh, so we were up. We started doing the ethics. And then as it started to spread across the world, we've got four people from Milan, four doctors from Milan here, and when the disease got to Italy, the Italian doctor started saying, look, this is not the same condition that we were told. This is different mm. from what we were hearing from China. It's not just affecting lungs. It's affecting blood vessels, affecting kidneys, brains, hearts. And we said, well, we've got this protocol that we're running across Asia Pacific. We're getting data already. Do you want to join in? Because, you know, we, we don't have vaccines. We don't have treatments. But there's a whole pile of data from patients that are in intensive care, and if you can bring it together, then it becomes incredibly powerful, you know, like a scrum. 
uh, if we have you know 310 hostels in the in the scrum pack, we can drive that uh, answer forward and, and score some tries. In, in in that sense, so the warning bells were ringing loud and clear, certainly in your ears, and most people had to think how do I avoid all the circumstances that could increase my chances of infection? You had to run headlong into every one of those circumstances. How do you prepare for something like that? We didn't prepare for it. <laughs> you know, we, uh, like I say, th- this is what we call databasing. I'm not very good at databasing, to be honest. <laughs> um, this is not but, a good time to be saying that, John. Yeah, just, hopefully <laughs> no one's listening. Uh, <laughs> no, they won't be. But, but, We've got our strengths, but I guess what we had was a moral imperative. Uh, these are our friends across Asia-Pacific. These are our friends across Italy and, and France and Spain and the UK. And they were getting absolutely smashed. You know, we were chatting to people just in the social chit-chat calls at night time. Mm. And it just sounded uh, awful. And we, thank God, have been lucky in Australia. And we've got time to prepare. And we had something that we thought could help them. We, we can't help them in their intensive care units in Milan or Beijing or Glasgow. But what we can do is create a, a tool that will help guide their treatment. Um, so, you know, it, again, it's all about football, it's all about team sports. You, you know, if you can't, you know, if you can't do one job, you can help them do something else. So, so it was a responsibility and we're fortunate. Uh, my team's got uh, people much, much brighter than I and we've just brought really good people together who were good at databases, who were good uh, at you know computer type things, we know what we want to do clinically, uh, but to augment that, we brought in the IBMs, the Amazons, the real world leaders. And were they easily brought on board? You know, in the sense that you're saying it's a, quite a global effort, which it obviously is. Um, was it a question of you know a couple of calls and people realised how vital it was that they did start sharing data and information? Look. Uh, Getting the data was incredibly easy and easier than normal. And I remember sitting thinking, why is this so much easier than it would normally be? And the answer is really simple. It was the imperative. None of us knew what we were doing. This is a disease that had never seen a human until mid-January or, or end of December, mid-January. So none of us knew what to do. Normally we go and look at textbooks. If you yes, get, like, of course. A disease or a road trauma, you've learned about it. You've got textbooks to go back and check. There's nothing written. You know, there's, there's no how to deal with COVID. And the clinicians at the forefront knew what we need to do is gather as much data and start looking for patterns to see, you know, at, at the start, people were roughly phoning their friends and saying, listen, Jimmy, what did you do with the patient you did? Oh, well, I did this, this, mm. this. Mm. Did it work? I, I think so. But that's incredibly non-scientific. But if we can get 10,000 Jimmys and get 10,000 patients in, then that power becomes substantial. And, and has that been the case? Have you been able to increase the uh, pool from where you're getting your, drawing your data? Well, yeah. You know, we've got 47 countries now. Uh, wow. Even in the States alone, there's 103 hospitals that have joined. We've got the, you know, we've got Saudi Arabia and Qatar talking together again. They're, they're you know, I don't know if you've followed this, but currently Saudi Arabia is thinking of cutting Qatar off. They're going to build a ditch and, and fill it with radioactive waste, but the doctors are ignoring this and working together as a team because oh. uh, that's the way it has to be. And, you know, without trying to make it too much of a kumbaya moment, um, people are, you know, the clinicians work well together and in a situation like this, um, needs must. Yeah. And that's why I think people are coming together. And, and, you know, 
fair power to the bigger companies, to the IBMs and the Amazon. They saw some of the early media about it, and they said, we want to help. We're good at data. We're good at data protection. We're good at artificial intelligence. If you get us enough data, we can do machine learning and give you decision support and build you dashboards that update real time so that you're in your intensive care unit. You get a patient in, and you can actually look at the dashboard that's been fed live data from across 47 countries and it's updating and it's giving you a guide as to what is and what isn't working. It's definitely not as good as a randomized controlled trial, but it's definitely better than listening to an American man that didn't go to university telling you to drink bleach. Yes, yes. So let's not go there for them. But it, so you're leading this group. What what are the sort of backgrounds of the people that comprise this? Are they all in a similar area um, or, or is it a mix of everything? Look, uh, I think in a situation like this, you have to pick a field that you're good at. So we're not doing the general population because I'm not good at that area. But what we are good at, we, we hope, is intensive care. So it's doctors, nurses, allied health around the intensive care area. We're dealing with some management. Uh, we're dealing with big multinationals. We've got professors of ethics from Oxford helping us with this. We've got psychiatrists also helping with us, you know, in this situation, particularly in the countries that have been really hit hard, we're starting to see good people behaving badly mm. in these stress situations. And, and I, I, I talked about, you know, five kids, you know, I go to work and I know that, it, you know, if and when COVID does come to Australia in big numbers, I know that when I go to work, I have got a significant risk. 26% of healthcare workers were affected in Italy. So I've got a significant risk of getting sick. How sick? Don't know. But if I go then home to my children and I give them a risk, yeah. You know what's what, what's the uh, what's the ethics there? Do you put your children ahead of your patients? Do you not turn up for work and protect your children, but leave patients to succumb? So the ethics around you know uh, how to behave, the, the way that people are coping with this, is very very variable. But we don't we don't know, and if we don't ask the question, we won't learn through this. And this COVID situation is not going to go away tomorrow. You know, it's great that Australia has not been hit, but once the social isolation drops back a bit and people start going to the footy or the airports open, the virus will come back. So we need to learn at the moment. We've got time. And, you know, only through learning and research can we make it a better tomorrow. I've heard you describe um, what you're doing uh, as putting together an early warning system. Um, is it something that, from what you say, we are, it's highly we can highly utilise it right now as well as a sort of uh, indicator for future catastrophes? Would that be right? Absolutely. No, absolutely. The, the data, we really want to, again, Australia is different from, from the rest of the world at the moment. The rest of the world is crying out for data. The, you know, the, the early hydroxychloroquine studies were, were um, not positive. It doesn't mean, you know, it, was, it wasn't the best study. The studies that have been done in Australia with Dave Patterson and the ASCO study, it's a great study and it needs to happen. But it may or may not work. Vaccines, there's 87 vaccines trials being conducted at the moment, uh, and I hope they work, but, you know, we, we never got a vaccine for SARS, we never got one for HIV, we never got one for the cold, and the common cold is also a coronavirus. Now, um, let's really hope we get one, but at the moment we don't have them, but what we do have is the data, and to not utilise it properly, I think, is a failure, and that's why we accepted we're not very good at it mm. um, but I've brought a team of outstanding people to make us look slightly better than we actually are. How has the government and in particular the Federal Health Minister Greg Hunt responded to this and to your 
work and requirements and needs? Um, so, uh, firstly, I think I, I think to be in government just now would be terrible. Uh, you know, no government would deal with this well because they've never seen anything like this. We've not planned for it. Uh, they've got a huge number of calls. 40 or 50% of people are either losing work uh, hours or losing their job. And they've got, you know, reduction of income and massive increases in expenditure. We did contact Greg Hunt and I eventually got a letter back, a very polite letter saying we've got some data in Australia and thanks, but no thanks. Um, uh, upsetting and frustrating for me, but totally understandable, I think, because there's so many calls and there's just a lot of noise in the system. Mm. That being said, um, our hospital foundation uh, listened and have, have you know, raised, I think, about $500,000 from uh, donors, which is, which is fantastic, and it means that we're on the right track. Mm. Similarly, you know, the, the Journal of the American Medical Association, which is sort of one of the world-leading medical associations, is doing a, a journalistic story on what we've done, not just the data, but to see, you know, this funny country with koala bears and, and yeah. uh, a, a nice bridge and a nice rock is leading the world in this. So, uh, you know, I am disappointed that we didn't get funding, but I can understand it. And I think, to be fair to the Chief Medical Officer, Professor Murphy and his team, they're doing a great job. Uh, I think, you know, the fact that we almost got a bump rather than a curve is, is great yeah. credit to the Chief Medical Officer and his team and also the population of Australia that listened and did what they were told. There's, there's a lot of, as you said, there's a lot of noise out there. And yeah. for you to be able to, I guess, push that aside is, is part of your job. But does it frustrate you when you hear armchair experts give opinions based on articles they've read or or a bit of research or worse from gut feel such as with the use of disinfectant as a potential cure yeah look armchair experts i don't consider myself an expert in this condition i don't know that anyone should it's a disease that's been around for three months if you can become an expert in three months it's probably not (laughs) a very complex and this really is a complex field so um armchair experts look i don't I actually think COVID is now just a medical phenomenon. It's a societal phenomenon. Mm. Like we said, people are losing jobs. Uh, people are not seeing their boyfriends, their girlfriends, their mums, their dads. People's whole behaviour has had to change. So it's way broader than just a medical condition. It's changed the way you eat, you know, the way you integrate, the way you socialise. Uh, it's changed all of these things. So. Uh, armchair experts, everyone should have an opinion, I guess, uh, but it would be good if there was a rationale behind people suggesting medical treatment. So that's what annoys me. People that don't understand medicine saying you should put a light up your back end or inject bleach, <laughs> and people will die. You know, I've, I've seen people die from, from drinking bleach. Oh, my so God, I, yeah. I, I, not, not, not recently. I've seen this as a trainee. It's, it's a well-known uh, thing that people have suicided. So I think that's appalling. Again, in credit to our state government, uh, uh, Dr. Janet Young, I think, has done a great job. Uh, Cameron Dick uh, has been involved. He's the Minister for Manufacturing, and he's really um, started to progress things well. He's, you know, we're helping him uh, working out what type of ventilators, if we need extra ones, we can yeah. do it. Yeah. Um, Kate Jones, the Head of Innovation, is going to try and get involved with our artificial intelligence and the IBM and the university. So, uh, the, the state government is, is interested in this team, but as you said, there's a lot of noise, whether it's from armchair experts or uh, real estate um, gurus in the states. 
um, and we just need to persuade them. And we'll, we'll, we'll go quietly about our job, we'll get the data, and hopefully we'll have the proof of the pudding. And it's not about showing they're wrong, it's about changing patients' lives. But, but absolutely, but nevertheless, getting the real estate agent and whoever telling you what they think should be done is like, you know, telling Roger Federer how to play tennis. I guess it's. Um, yeah, yeah, but you know, I, I guess that's um, that's the world we live in. It's uh, that yeah. the more noise you can make in media, the more people will listen. <laughs> yes, uh, we we just need to just nod and and keep going with our job and ignore the noise, uh, and and get data to show that you know when you do get three hundred and twenty of the world's best hospitals coming together in a selfless manner, not about self-publication, that we will come out with an answer uh, and that the vaccine makers will come out with an answer and that the treatment uh, guys will come out with an answer too. And, and look, this is a long question, I apologise in advance, but things are changing and evolving so rapidly. I mean, just today I read about the newly formed Rapid Research Information Forum, which for our listeners is a forum of 35 members of research and science leaders who meet by email to consider questions from cabinet ministers. There's also the 100 researchers from the group of eight universities which have put forward the Roadmap to Recovery report. Um, who is it, in your opinion, that we should be listening to or reading? First and foremost, your mum. She always <laughs> listens to your mum. Yes. Uh, just, just in case my mum's listening to this. Yes, all, all you kids uh, out there, yeah, that's sage advice. Look, that's a really good question. Um, you know, I, I, I think those that are in the health service will be thinking, oh, my God, another email. And that's what I've got to be honest. If I never see a Zoom call again, I'll be more than happy. <laughs> um, it, it's a difficult one. You know, the 24-7 news cycle has got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, Twitter channels, everything. There is no filter mechanism that that can select, you know, rubbish from yes. clarity. I've got to be honest, I think the stuff that Brendan Murphy and, and the Chief Health Officers both there, and I, I'm not listening to New South Wales people, but the, the Queensland people, uh, I, I think they are uh, good. But I think, you know, we looked at this the other day, there are 6,000 medical reports published since January about COVID, but what? most of them are not a particularly high fidelity. They don't have large number of patients. It's a small number, but it's, you know, first to the post. I think this is what we're trying to go against. I think you listen to an international response, which is measured, which is calculated, which has got global leaders before this uh, involved. And you can kind of think, if this is a consensus of 300 plus centres, 50, 50 countries, yes. that probably is worth listening to. Um, in, in the interim, I think Norman Swan's done a good job, not just because he's Glaswegian, uh, but yes. I think he has spoken well. I know he's upset some people, but I, I think he speaks well. Uh, but I'm not sure there is any global source of truth um, other than I would say data is pure as long yes. as we deal with it properly. So the data should give us the answer. It's a little bit uh, like the X-Files um, when Mulder said the truth is out there. Well, the data is there and the mm. data is the truth. We can't, we, we, we can't, we're not fudging it, but we're just, um, we're just uh, mining the data and trying to find that diamond. Yeah. Can you tell me about your group ECMO card, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, yep. and what they're aiming to achieve? So, so the, the study started as ECMO card, that's when it was just in the Asia Pacific, and ECMO stands for 
extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, long word, basically bionic lung. When we had the swine flu in 2009, we used this a lot when your lungs are just too stiff and they don't get oxygen across. Mm. Then we can basically, if you imagine a broken leg, so when your leg's broken, you put it in a plaster cast and you let it recover. That's roughly the idea with ECMO. When your lungs are so damaged, rather than make them work harder, we can rest them and put a large piece of garden hose pipe into the blood vessels in your leg and transport between four and five litres of blood per minute through a plastic artificial lung. So that's what ECMO is. And I, we uh, here at the Prince Charles, I guess, lead, lead one of the world leaders in the ECMO research. So when we started the study across the Asia-Pacific, looking at the COVID-19, the, 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 the virus had not actually been named by the stage. That's how far ahead we were. So we called it ECMO card. But then it's it's morphed into something much more than just the artificial lung. So it, it's the, I guess we it's a little bit like Prince, you know, the artist formerly known as Prince. Mm. Uh, it's uh, ECMO card is now morphed into the COVID-19 Critical Care Consortium because it's not just about the lungs, it's about the heart, it's about the kidneys, it's about the long-term recovery, it's about what will you people that have recovered look like in two years? Will there still be significant disability? Will they have normal brain function? Will they be able to go back to work and look after their kids? Uh, so we've got so little data but so much to do that we have to go on and do it and that's why we went to the government, both federal and state, and you know we'll get there. Uh, and they will also understand as the data starts to come out that this is something incredibly valuable, not just a pile of research, but we're about changing the outcome in the intensive care floor uh, for those that are there for 24 hours and hot and sticky PPE, but also what's going to happen in the next two years. Mm -hmm. Is there anything, John, that we, the punters, can do to help you I think first and foremost, socially isolate, stay safe, self-isolate and support ECMO card was our, was our buzz phrase. Um, the COVID critical is the uh, website that the Prince Charles Foundation has put in and I'm very grateful to them. We couldn't have done it without them and the, to the donor. So if people um, uh, think it's worthwhile and that they're not struggling too much themselves, we, we, would, we can do a better job with the more staff we've got. So the COVID critical is the, the website that, that's out there to, to donate. We are still working with IBM, etc. but the data we get in, as you can imagine, getting data from Saudi, from Indonesia, from France and from Glasgow, there are problems with that in terms of some of the data is not perfectly clean, so we need to go through it. We are still you know, looking at people to help us data clean, uh, and so there, there are still assets there. To Keith McNeil, the uh, Deputy Director General, he's promised us five staff uh, to help with them. We could really do with it. You can imagine running calls 24-7, yeah. uh, and you know this will surprise you hugely, but med medics can occasionally be slightly egotistical beasts. No. Uh, so we have to gently look after each person. Um, so we, we need staff members. We need you know su admin support. We need um, people to help us with web design. We need all of these things. We've had great support. The Australian Law Society even gave us free legal help. How good is that? Getting lawyers to uh, mm. get lawyers to do, do things for nothing. It turns out they do have a heart after all. Luke, Luke Murphy and Don McGann were, were very good there. Uh, still waiting for accountants to do things for nothing. Uh, hopefully <laughs> some of them in the Bernard Curran, one of my good mates, is listening. But Yes, you know, we, we both know who he is too. Yeah, yeah. Some things will never change. But, you know, <laughs> even the accountants might even do some stuff for nothing. Um, but but I think this is what, you know, one of the questions was, 
you know, have you seen anything good happening? I, I think the one thing I saw bad happening was that this was going to be my season in the sun. I knew I was going to be the top scorer for the Division 6. Oh, uh, I see. Right it, it, it was my time. It, it's been 51 years coming, but I can feel it coming. Look. But, 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 <laughs> but that's one of the bad things. One of the good things is people are working in a selfless manner. You know, uh, the, the thing that we see in Australia is people have stayed inside and have started socially and, and have effectively socially isolated versus the things, the horrible things I've seen in some places in the state saying, why should I isolate for your health? Yeah. We haven't had any of that behaviour in Australia. Yeah. So I think uh, Australian society uh, will come out stronger, will come out in a, in a more selfless manner. I think that's important and I think that's partly why we've done well. I think communities saying, I can help, I'm not sure what I can do. You know, orthopaedic surgeons saying, look, you know, a joint replacement isn't actually that important, but I can move beds, I can clean floors, I'll do whatever it takes to be part of the recovery. Mm. Again, that's what's true society, and if, uh, if we can see something like that come of it, it's terrible for those that have suffered and died. Mm. But if we can get benefits from this, I think we have to try and be a bit Pollyanna. And absolutely, and that was one of the big things I was going to ask you about, the positive that would be coming from this horrendous experience. But I mean, you know, joking apart, um, you know, we're not experts, our group are not experts at uh, databasing and things like this, but we have brought together one of the largest ever collaboratives of intensive care across the world. Normally, if you design a study across one country, you spend six to 12 months doing all the legwork, paperwork, the, the ethics, the da-da-da-da-da. We got... 47 countries to sign up to get the ethics, the IRB, in 112 days. And it shows what people can do mm. when put self aside and work for the team. I, you know, as a footballer, that's, to me, what it's about. And it just shows that when people want to work together, like I say, the, the different Arab states working all together, Europe working with Asia, working with the, the, the Baltics, working with the states, that, that we have to see the strength of this. My sister's interesting. My sister's an artist, and um, as well as a teacher in a special needs school. And she just keeps phoning me every couple of weeks, you know. And so I'm getting very little sleep and dealing with a million Zoom calls. My sister's starting. She says, "Isn't that fantastic? Life's just so lovely and slow just now. We just hang around and we have so much oh, time." I said, Monica, "Wrong please person. Stop. Please, please stop." And, uh, but she's my big sister. She's got she's got four daughters and a son. And I was just telling her about a month or two, I said, this is going to keep going for a while. And she said, oh, Jesus, no. I'm running a hotel for adolescent girls, uh, and the volume in our house at the best of times is phenomenal. So uh, I feel sorry for my sister. Oh, yeah, 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 right. We, uh, it is that collegiate approach uh, amongst the, the health professionals that seems to be quite amazing that, as you say, that the international access you've had to such a broad group of people in such a short space of time must give you a sense of, uh, you know, well-being, a sense of satisfaction that this can be done. Oh, oh yeah, hugely. You know, you know, like, I, I don't know about you, but I, I used to use Zoom maybe once a month, and I am a, a sociable Scot, so I like to go and meet people, sit down and have a coffee or a glass of wine or a pizza and go through things. But, the, you know, the using technology for good, uh, has been phenomenal. You know, I've yeah. met people I've never met before and they've come out with fantastic ideas. And as I say, you know, medics are sharing their ideas, sharing their ability. And very few of them have even asked, you know, do I get my name in the publication? It's more about just this is a massive problem 
and we have to work together. Mm. Uh, and I, I do think that's actually a really lovely take. And once I get asleep at the end of all of this, that's what the, the, the sort of warm glow that you get from people putting their egos aside and just working as part of the collaborative, I think, I yeah. think it's fantastic and it's what medicine should be about. Well, you and I have only just scratched the surface here, but I'm very conscious of your time and <laughs> ripping it away from you at the moment. But I have one final question, Professor John Fraser. Sure. Can I buy you a beer when I'm allowed back in Brisbane? Uh, deal. Uh, you can buy me a beer and we'll get our good mate Bernard Curran again. An accountant buying anything would be a great thing. That would be fantastic. I look forward to it. <laughs> well, on behalf of all Australians, really, thank you so much for your work and thank you for your time. Anderson, you stay well, eh? We need you. All right. Thanks, mate. Go well. Right. Speak soon. Bye-bye. We'll have links in our show notes to the things we've discussed on this podcast. Check out our Instagram, This Corona Life, for photos of our guests and links. And take a look at the website, redgproductions.com. Thank you to my producer, Kiro Sullivan. I look forward to your company on our next episode of This Corona Life. Bye for now.